Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Ultraspeed Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. Why is it I always get Telegram messages right when the show starts? Unbelievable, you guys. Hey, happy to be with, here with you. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. We have an exciting show lined up for you. And uh, some of these messages answered. There we go. All right. Telegram is a wonderful thing. It keeps me totally connected to everyone 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And what's what's kind of interesting is if you've ever been to Jupiter Broadcasting, you've ever sat outside in the living, little living room area, it's an ongoing joke. Chris has it, and, um, and he jokes about it. He'll say, anytime I'm about to start a show, a bunch of people will send me messages. And these aren't messages from, like, just random people. They're not messages from, you know, from just people out there. It'll be messages from people that need an answer to actually get the show started. In this particular case, the, the call system. But uh, it's just it's kind of funny that that always happens right as you're about to start the show or right before the show. I actually got in here and my microphone was missing. Uh completely different story, but it's been a fun time getting on the air, but we are happy to be here with you. And uh, like I said, exciting show. Jason starts off this hour in Pennsylvania. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Jason. Hey, Noah. How are we doing? Hey, pretty good. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Sitting down. We got a nice day outside, just kind of chilling. Fantastic. Well, so Jason, if you guys remember, is a, a gentleman that we chatted with back at Southeast Linux Fest. Now, Jason, you and I have been friends for a couple of a uh, couple of years, and we have gone back and forth on a number of different topics. And uh, when I saw you in the chat room, I, I did. I asked you to call in tonight because I wanted to pick your brain about thin clients. Um, over the past couple of weeks, we have been uh, talking on the Ask Noah show about uh, libvirt, virtualizing, uh, virtual machines, stuff like that. And one of the things that uh, we I have landed on with a couple of my clients is Windows is actually a really tolerable operating system when it doesn't actually isn't actually in control of any physical hardware where it's not actually relying on the metal where you don't have to deal with drivers and driver issues and where we're just using things like RDP to connect into it and clients like Remina stuff like that or our desktop. And that led me down this entire path of building these little thin clients out of uh, Raspberry Pis to see how they work. And uh, Chris DeLuca, I guess that's been on from West Virginia, he was on a couple weeks ago. And now he has started to do kind of the same thing and started working with these thin clients. And I know you used to work for a company that designed thin clients specifically for, for you know, that kind of purpose. And I'm wondering, um, what kind of, what I guess, what kind of infrastructure did you guys primarily push those kind of devices towards? Uh, that was at Devon IT while I was there as, as a distribution manager. Um, we actually targeted mostly Windows machines that were the end result. However, we did have clients that were making use of Linux VMs. Mm -hmm. So whether the client was using Citrix or VMware, uh, Hyper-V, or another product called ThinLink, which was able to do Windows and or Linux uh, virtual machines, we targeted all of those in the end. But primarily speaking, most people would have one of these small thin clients with an embedded Linux that would then use RDP or Citrix to do their full desktop, do their applications, their communication software, so they could do their Skype link, what, whatever they wanted to do. So I guess, I, 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 maybe I wasn't clear about this, I guess we have also been uh, looking at using the, the Windows client, but basically what we're doing is we're setting up a Linux server and we are installing a lot of windows virtual machines inside of using libvirt as a hypervisor and then we're using clients like remina to connect into those virtual windows machines with rdp now the advantage is all of the downsides of windows things like viruses and malware and and uh, it, all of that just becomes a rollback command um, and I can go back to a previous instance where I can have what, what I call them sterile copies of each of the workstation images. And then I just I delete that workstation, make another copy from my sterile library. And then I have that machine back up and running. I'm wondering if that's a if if from a thin client perspective, if that's a prescribed way to build a thin client infrastructure. Right. At that point, you're not necessarily building a thin client infrastructure. You're handling how you're creating your VMs. It doesn't matter if you have a thin client or a fat client. 
the end result is you're managing a VM that has the ability to do any rollbacks. Mm, right, so I guess. Using, you know, Remina, which lies with uh, FreeRDP, et cetera, or going with some other option. I mean, it's still functions perfectly as the way you've described it. Right. And I guess that's what I was asking was, you know, would something like Devon IT be a, you know, a good way to handle the front end of that? And then I guess the follow-up question to that is, I have been on the hunt for a thin client operating system. Do you know of any such thing that, like an OS that I can just burn and repurpose, maybe some old x86 computers? Uh, There's a few that are out there. So from the purely open and completely documented versions there is the Linux terminal server project, which does support uh, the client bits. You can actually hand those out over, uh, I'm forgetting the, Pixie? the proper term because I haven't used it in a while. Yes, Pixie, that's it. That's what I'm looking for, Pixie or even iPixie. Um, Devin obviously produces its own Linux distribution that's referred to as DTOS, uh, the Devon terminal operating system. They also actually make a product for repurposing things, and that's actually referred to as VDI Blaster. And you can actually take that and stick that onto almost any machine in the last decade, and it will turn it to a fully managed Devon IT thin client that you can hook into their software uh, management. And the management piece, by the way, is entirely free. Um, not as in open, but as in beer. But uh, there are a couple of other options. I'm actually looking for one. There's a fellow uh, goes by the handle of Hendry that actually does specifically thin client software on a Raspberry Pi that was actually very similar to what we did at Devon IT. Yes. Uh, not necessarily with the software, but with the actual client bits. And I actually worked with him in a few instances to fix some of the bugs that he was having with uh, X3RDP when it came to the screen drawing on the ARM platform, a couple of issues that we both saw when it handled to certificates and having certificate chains installed when you're doing RDP couple things like that. So I've worked with him in the past. He's actually one of my community users in Arch Linux Arm, and his he's actually got one particular version of his software that actually runs on top of Arch Linux Arm as a base, as, as a replacement for Raspbian. So there's a couple of, of really good options out there. Unfortunately, I don't have a fully compiled list to offer you. Sure. Yeah, and I've actually, I've played with that Raspberry Thin Client uh, operating system. In fact, I've recommended to it to a couple people, and we actually, uh, we linked it in the show notes a couple weeks ago uh, when we talked about it on the air. One of the other operating systems that I'm curious to get pick your brain about, if you've heard of, is uh, Thin Links, which is, a, uh, which, is a, which is a Thin Client operating system. They actually offer it in three different flavors. They offer an ARM variant for Raspberry Pi, they offer a regular uh, version for x86 for repurposing computers, and then they offer like a, a one specifically for like the Intel compute sticks and uh, and you know the little Lenovo uh, you know HDMI dongle type things that you can that have a little ARM computer built right into them, and uh, that has lately, as of late anyway, is one thing that I've been kind of playing with, and I'm, I'm curious if you've heard of it or played with it at all. I have a feeling that I have indeed actually heard of this before. I have not personally played with it, however. Um, I'm actually looking at their page right now, and I would lean to believe, knowing what the ARM platforms are capable of and knowing the state of things before I ended up leaving at the end of the, my term at Devon IT, I would say it's fully capable of doing everything it says. Outstanding. Yeah, that's. it seems like that's a really great way if you have those clients that absolutely have to have some Windows software. Um that it seems like virtualizing the Windows boxes and then a- accessing them with the you know RDP clients stuff like that thin clients might be the way to go uh, to get some of that in there. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to pick your brain when I saw you in the chat room and uh, how are things going in Pennsylvania? And I, I owe you an apology actually. I'll just make it on air right now. I, I previously credited you as working for GitHub. It's GitLab that you work for. You are a freedom respecting penguin, and I did not give you your all due respect. Yeah, and we didn't have any downtime today, by the way. Uh, <laughs> the community will get that joke in a few days. <laughs> anyway, Okay, all right. The thing I wanted to point out is when it comes to thin clients, if you're going to repurpose an older x86 box, 95% of the time you won't have much of an issue, but there are certain uh, AMD older graphics cards that may actually cause you a couple of issues if you're using something like Microsoft Office. So if you see that ever know that that's a known issue and people are actually working specifically to fix that problem and it has to do with the the way the screen refreshes are actually done as a part of of RDP protocol. 
Now, second is, I know that you're looking at Raspberry Pis and the community is going, hey, I can make a thin client for 35 bucks. Let me remind you folks that if you're going to do video and audio feedback, you probably do not want to rely on a Raspberry Pi because all of the network is done over the USB. Okay? So uh-huh. your USB bandwidth on that is limited by the fact that it has a single host bus, which means your keyboard, your mouse, your Wi-Fi adapter, your Ethernet, they're all on the same USB bus. So you're going to have division of your bandwidth there. So if you're, you want to watch... Uh, 720p video over your thin client, the Pi is going to take a crap. It's not the Pi. It's that you can't actually support the network bandwidth to do that. Okay? So be aware, folks, that there are limitations in that particular device that are hardware limitations. Not saying the software can't do it. Not saying your configuration can't do it. I'm saying the bus that has the network attachment will not live up to what you want. And you have my apologies for that. But life is what it is. That's right. There we are. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for taking the time to uh, to come on. If people wanted to find more information about you and, and all the fun things you do, where can people go? Well, there's a couple of places you can go. Uh, first off, obviously, for my day job, you can do gitlab.com slash warheadsse. You can do the same thing on Twitter at, at warheadsse. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as the one and only Jay Plum. It'll be very easy to find me because if you can't find me, well, you're looking at the wrong profile. And if you don't see GitLab, then you don't realize you're not looking at the Linux-loving user that I am. There you go. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to call in. We we really appreciate it. And thanks for being uh, such a friend of the show, being willing to uh, answer our questions. That's, that's a crazy way to start out the hour, huh, guys? It's, it's, we start the hour, the Ask Noah Show, where you call for your technical questions by Noah asking a guy to call in, then he answers my technical questions. <laughs> James was calling from Idaho. Hi, James. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Yeah, Noah, um, uh, if I install over two hard drives, I've never done this before, on two hard drives with EFI in the mix. Okay. I know when you Linux, when you, if you just say race and use the entire drive, you're good to go. But when you have one to split the drives up, I want to put home on those spinning Swap partition on the spinning and whatever else I don't need off of the because SSD is small. Gotcha. Well, the short answer to your question. Yeah, the short answer to your question is that as long as you let the installer do its thing, it's going to create the EFI partition for you and it's going to set all that cool jazz up. And so as long as your boot order is correct, um, as long as you got the right drive that is bootable, it's going to be fine. And the interesting thing about EFI is when you go into your UEFI interface, it actually labels, it's actually something that kind of frustrates me, and I'll tell you why in a second. It actually labels the 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 boot option, the EFI boot option. So for example, if you install Ubuntu 16.04, in a BIOS, when you would open up your BIOS, you would see, what drive do you want to boot? Do you want to dr- boot uh, the 250 gig SanDisk or the 128 gig, you know, Samsung or the, you know, whatever, right? In EFI, it actually will say, do you want to boot the Ubuntu 16.04 installation or the Fedora 17 installation or whatever, right? Uh, it actually labels those those labels. Now, now, just as an aside, one thing that really irritates me about that is on my ThinkPad, for example, it remembers every operating system I've ever installed on my ThinkPad. And so the last one I had, I installed Ubuntu, then I installed Arch, then I installed Fedora, then I, you know, and so what would happen is I would go into my EFI and there'd be this list of all, you know, every operating system I'd ever installed. And there might be a way to clear it. I don't know, but it was really stupid because I would go in there and I would like, well, I could, I could set Fedora as an operating system, but I haven't had Fedora on this machine in a year and it wouldn't actually boot anything if I set it. So why doesn't, why doesn't it go away? And I don't know. Um, so I actually kind of find it frustrating, but it should be pretty easy for you to decide if you're worried about your boot order, getting that set up to begin with. Now, back to your question of how do you separate those drives out? Well, you obviously what you would do uh, if you're do- doing just a standard partition, you would just you'd put all of the files, you know, you install your root directory in one drive and then you'd put your home partition on a second hard drive. Now, let me let me ask you a question. Are you separating out the home drive because you want to keep all your personal data if you ever have to reinstall a machine? Well, I have the tendency to reinstall and then try to redo the, uh, where did I put that backup? Yeah. So I thought, well, if I uh, read, if I put my home directory on its own little partition, on its own separate drive, then theoretically I've been told, not told, but read, that you you won't lose it when you decide to go from Mint to Ubuntu to say what the, hey, let's try out 
newest thing from Red Hat people, mm-hmm. which is a, you know not actually Red Hat, but I forget, I keep forgetting that my first Linux was actually Red Hat Box Edition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mine too actually. Bad, bad choice. Five point four. Kind of a bad bad choice when you're when you're first picking a Linux, but that was a long time ago when they. Kernel's really old. You know, mine was but, my my first know. my first uh, dip with Linux was Red Hat five point four, and I got to be honest with you, it was the first one that ever worked out of the box. Network controller, modem, all that stuff. But let me uh, th- let me tell you this. So that is true. Uh, assuming you don't botch the install, which some people do. Some people will go to reformat their drive, and they accidentally, you know, goof the thing up, and then all of a sudden now their data's gone. So that's a thing that happens. You got to watch it. But let me give you a let me give you a piece of advice. I have gone away from the store all my stuff on a home partition separate drive that way i've got all my stuff and i can jump from distro to distro it it sounds good in theory here's what nobody tells you your home uh, your home directory is the city sanitation dump for every single config file and history file and bookmark file and you name it when software manufacturers design this stuff, they're like, where are we going to put that? Oh, we'll throw it in the home directory. Well, it'll clutter it up. Put it in a hidden directory. You ever go into your home directory, click control H after a uh, year, year and a half of installing software and using it, you will, it will blow your mind at how many folders and files and you know, this, that, and the other that's in there. And then second of all, there, I find, at least me personally, I will find that I, and I'm, this is particularly bad about this with bookmarks, but I do this with other things too. I'm a pack rat. And so there's a ton of stuff that I'm just like, I'll bookmark that or I'll save that or I'll install that program. I don't use that anymore. And so I collect all this junk in my home folder that I don't even use anymore. Um, And then if, if, if you perpetuate that on for, you know, a year or two or three over a bunch of different distros. So now you've got maybe some KDE stuff in there and some GNOME stuff in there and, you know, whatever, some whatever desktop you're using. But you start to collect all that junk in there. It's kind of nice just to kind of refresh the machine and 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 just clean it out. And it also makes you conscious of where your data is too. Well, I got my folders here. I've got this file here. I've got that file there, that kind of thing. So that's one thought to consider. Here's the second thought to consider. Rather than partitioning up your hard drive like that, because basically what you're doing when you partition the hard drive is you are making a, you are making a gamble that you know now today that you're never going to need more than the amount of space available on that second drive for home. And you're making a gamble today that you know now today when you set the machine up that you're never going to need any more space than whatever the space available is on the first drive for your root drive, right? And to me, that's a that's a silly gamble to make when we have something like LVM. And if you're not familiar with what LVM is, LVM is the Logical Volume Manager. And basically what it does is you can take hard drives and you can combine the hard drives together to make one physical disk, a virtual physical disk. And then on top of the physical virtual physical disk, you can then create mini virtual disks back out. So for example, I might take two four terabyte drives, physical hard drives, and combine them into one eight terabyte physical, uh, virtual physical drive. And then I'll, I will separate it back out into... Uh, you know, little mini drives on top that I can in- install my actual OS onto. The, here's the advantage to doing it that way, James. If you do it that way, you retain the flexibility to at any time open up LVM Manager and say, I created my home partition this big. I want to actually give it some more space. And I want to make this one a little bit, you know, less. And I want to make that one a little bit more. And you can you can jostle that stuff around. And LVM will talk directly to the disks on the bottom and make sure that, you know, it reshuffles things as it needs. It gets even better. Let's say five years down, five years down the road, you decide you're really get you get big into Steam games and you're downloading Steam games right and left. And now all of a sudden you've eaten up all of both of the drives. You've eaten you've eaten a ton of space up. Okay, time to upgrade James's drive. You can go on Newegg, purchase another four terabyte drive, whatever, plug it into the system, add it to the logical volume management, tell LVM, hey, I want to move all of as much data as I can from these drives over to this, you know, four terabyte, whatever, eight terabyte, whatever you buy. You move it over, and then you then you tell LVM now I want to remove this disk from the from the uh, from the collection, and you can actually in real time even swap out a hard drive, or maybe one of the drives starts to fail on you. You can replace it and and swap it back in. So for those reasons, for that flexibility, I really like LVM. Does that sound like something you would consider trying? Oh, it sounds like you would have to send me uh, several 
books and subjects. <laughs> <laughs> right, Fair enough. To, all right, I have, to, all right, I have to find the money to contact. Uh, your company and say, uh, uh, help. Yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, I tell you what, I'll do, James. I will, I will, ni- I will do neither of those things. I'll take a third option, which is even better for you. What I will do is, I will, if you, uh, if you hang on the line here when we get off, I'll put you back on hold, and I'll have Sarah pick up. She'll take down your particulars. And what I will do is, uh, if if you send an, an email, and I, the, to the gentleman that sent uh, last week, he reached out to me via email. I was sending him a Samba config. I've not forgotten. I've just been out of town. Got back. I'm doing the Asnoa thing. As soon as I get done with this, I've got some phones stuff to deal with for a church and then I will get to your uh, I'll, I'll send that email to you but I did see that it came in um, I, it, Sarah will take your particulars down and what we'll do is I will send you the, uh, the 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 quick and dirty guide. The reality is, it's actually really simple to set up. It, at the Ubuntu installation screen, all you have to do is check the little box that says "Use LVM," and it will set everything up for you. Once you get into Ubuntu, then you can install the LVM manager, which is just a tool. And I'll, I'll give you the the exact utility name so you can install it. And you can take that tool, and it's a graphical tool, and you can go in there and say, "I want to shrink this. I want to expand that. I want to try this." Give it a shot. Make yourself a couple of uh, disks in VirtualBox even and play with it and install, run through an installer and see what you think and then get back to me. But I think what you're going to find is it's a, it's, a, it's a really, really slick way to manage your storage. And it is as close to ZFS as so some of the things that you could do with ZFS that we've had natively on Linux since before ZFS was available on Linux. And it's, it's how I do all of my servers and it's how my laptop is currently set up. And I'm very happy with it. Jared is calling from Florida. Hi, Jared. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. I was hoping um, I could get your assistance with a problem I was running into. Okay. Okay, so I've been following you for a while. I kind of know how whenever you need a computer, uh, your first instinct is kind of to uh, not necessarily get something new, but get something uh, used online. like 100%. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I try to do that. You know, I'm try, I do want to start a small uh, web design business, but I'm trying to be careful. You'll not get into debt or nothing. Um, and so I had found a nice computer to get on eBay, but then while it was shipped, a week has passed by. And from what I could tell, either it is lost or it is stuck where it was middle at. Um, it's supposed to go from California to Florida. It's been in the exact same spot in California for a week. And, because this is through eBay, you know, I can get my money back eventually, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering if at this point, just because of the trouble I'm going through, would it not be better just to uh, bite the bullet and just get something new from a more reliable uh, site, such as maybe Dell or System76? I do have the cash on hand. I wouldn't be going into debt. I just don't want to, I guess, in the excitement and the rush of starting a small uh, business, uh, eat more of my funds than necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So first, I'll just start out and commend you for not going into debt. Debt in the business world is it, it just it's risk. That's what it is. And um, starting a small business is risky enough uh, without adding additional risk. So we don't need the additional risk. So the question that you're asking me really uh, in business terms is how much of uh, we look at everything as a return on investment. We abbreviate that ROI. So if I buy a $500 laptop, how can I make $501 or what will what will the return be? And we like to see something around 30% if we're selling products, right? And so if for something in use in-house, we might not see that, right? Like there's plenty of things that I don't know what the ROI on my laptop is. I'm sure it's, you know, I'm sure there there is one. I just, I've never sat down to actually calculate the thing. Um, and so what you're asking is, is it worth to take a, less of an ROI because you're going to you're going to spend a higher purchase price uh, than it is to wait for for this machine to come for eBay or sort through the the issues that it is eBay. Now you're right, eBay does have buyer protection, so there's at zero at no point are you ever at risk of losing your money. However, you're right, you're also right in saying that there is a hassle factor, um, and so that my answer to you would be, uh, or how how I would answer that question is, when do you need that computer buy, and. Let me tell you something, a valid reason for I need to have that computer sooner might be if I spend an extra $100 on the computer to go buy it from Best Buy or you know spend an extra 150 bucks to go buy it in, in Amazon or something like that, but in doing that, I haven't lost any of my energy, I haven't lost any of my forward momentum, I'm ready to go, I'm amped up, I, I, I want to do this thing, that is... That is that cannot be discounted as an invalid reason to, you know, to, to think about the thing. Um, 
especially if you have the cash on hand, if it's, if you have the money on hand and it's something you want to do, I say, go for it, man. Um, I, that's what I did with my ThinkPad with the, when the 270 came out, had USB-C, I, I knew, uh, I, I, I would be better off driving down the street, throwing hundred dollar bills out the window, uh, than I would be buying a brand new laptop, uh, at, on the day it comes out. I mean, the thing drops in value, just, it's just, it's just, it's just atrocious. And that's all laptops. Even you people with the fruit, half eaten fruit on the front of it, your laptop drops in value too. Um, so they all, they all go down in value and, and, and I ate it. I ate the cost and I said, you know what? The reality is I got the money. I want the thing. And, uh, I, I want that USB-C port and I want the USB charging port. And to be honest with you, uh, you know, Jared, I'm happy with it. I'm happy that I spent the extra money because I have now purchased all new USB-C adapters and it has, it's streamlined a lot of my work process. I've started to integrate USB-C docs in with my computer, which has made me more valuable to my clients because now I'm able to offer them some input. So yeah, sometimes it is a good idea to spend a little extra money. Does that help you? It does, and if it's okay, uh, could I ask a follow-up question? Please. Okay. Well, now the the reason why I'm actually getting this laptop is because I'm I'm in an interesting situation. Just because of um, things that happened a year or so ago, I had to move back home. But back home, there's a heavy limit on uh, internet. I mean, it's quite literally 10 gigs a month mm -hmm. with a family of five. So. You know, basically the laptop is so that, you know, I can go somewhere else if need be. Um, I, I, I guess my question is, what would be some um, smart ways to make use of that time? Because it's not just that, oh, I have to drive somewhere, which kills time, but also I'm commuting about an hour of two, about a total of two hours a day. Okay, so how do you make the most of your time? How do you make the most of your, your drive? Is that what you're asking? Basically, how, how do I make the most of the little time that I have? Because I believe I can be productive. I believe uh -huh. I can do business. However, I don't want to, um, I guess, in ignorance, waste valuable time. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, okay. So one of the things, and I struggle with that early on, actually. Um, one of the things I had an issue for when I was when, when I was first starting a business was, you know, you would get these... Uh, the first couple tickets that are the first couple issues that come in, it's like, it becomes your life. You're like, Oh yeah, I got a customer. I can deal with this. Right. But then as time goes on, you get a couple issues that they come in and you know, right off the bat, they're not going to be a ton of money. It's some, you know, somebody wants, you know, they want their website. They want their domain transferred from one registrar to another. They want their, they want you to set up their email and you, you start looking at it. You say, well, I'm not going to make a ton of money off of doing this, but you need it to build the reputation, stuff like that. And you get a lot of those lingering things that just kind of, kind of stack up and, uh, and they have to be done eventually, but a lot of people aren't in a rush. And so then you start asking yourself, was well, it worth it to like take time off work or is it worth it to go blow my weekend to deal with this? You know, what, what do I do? My answer to you or my answer to myself back then, and my answer to you now would be a ticketing system, uh, something like OS ticket where you go through and say, here are all the things I need to, to get done. And when you log into OS ticket and you go into your, you click on my tickets, you can see what are the list of things that Jared has to get done in order for Jared's business to succeed. And then you can say, okay, I got a, you know, I got a big stack of these things. I need to go, I need to go, you know, punch the grind a little bit. And you go into a coffee shop or wherever it is you're going to do it. You open your laptop up and then you have a list right there of all the things that you need to get done. Additionally, the other thing it'll help you do uh, is sometimes you'll have issues that require prerequisites, right? So like you'll have a, a, a client that says, well, we want, we, you know, we want, uh, well, just the other day, we were doing a, a, a migration at a, uh, at a hair salon, Sport Clips, and one of the things that they needed was a new uh, router. And so I can't actually schedule the install until I get the router. And so actually looking through the ticket and saying, okay, well, we need to assign these things and we need this kind of VPN and we need this, this thing set up this way and that way you go, okay, that's going to require something better than the little Linksys router they have. We better get a router in there. And then that way you're not wasting your time sitting at the coffee shop, you know, with your laptop open, looking through things and go, oh, I hit a roadblock. I can't do that. Or I needed a license key for this piece of software and I don't have that. So I have to wait until that company gets back to me. You can deal with some of those little piddly things at home on your smartphone or wherever. And then when you go sit down to work, then you're actually working. And if you're actually going to go out and do service calls, I would recommend some sort of a, a, a scheduling system. And there's a really great free one out there. I don't have uh, I don't have the name off the top of my head, but I will look it up for you and I'll have it in the show notes um, and scheduling yourself. And so 
Fridays at 3 p.m. or Fridays at 6 p.m., that's that's Jared's work time. That's when Jared does his work on, on his business. And if you schedule yourself and you treat it like a job where I have to get up and I have to go in and I have to drive down, I have to sit down and I have to work on these things and you set that up for yourself, that's how you're going to continually move forward. And it, it, when you get to a, a size like Altaspeed, I, we would not be able to function without a ticket system and without a scheduling system. Um, we use both of them heavily uh, to, to make sure that, that things are being responded to and that technicians are getting places. Um, and we're even trying to integrate a lot of that into our remote support stuff, albeit not quite as successfully as we utilize it here in, in, in city. But we're trying to utilize some of that stuff to make sure that those tickets are getting addressed quickly and, and people are satisfied and so on and so forth. Does that help you? It does. Um, yeah, I, I think that definitely makes things uh, more clear. So thank you very much. Fantastic. Well, thanks. We really appreciate having you. And uh, thanks for listening to the Ask Noah show. Uh, let's see here. Bill is calling from Indiana. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hi, Noah. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. How can we help? Well, I got this Lenovo Yoga, and I'm running Fedora 26 on it. And I've tried several different things to disable the touchscreen on it, because I'm getting those ghost touches. Mm-hmm. And... I just can't get it to work. You know, X input with the disable and everything. It's, you know, frustrating me. Sure. Um, so the, uh, and I, I, I'm going to assume that you've tried things like you've gone into the UEFI, see if you could disable it there. If there's no function key that you can disable the touchscreen there. Uh, yeah, I dug around and I don't remember seeing it in there. Okay. Um, I, you know, I don't know specific- oh, specifically. Say, I'm sorry. Say again. Unless you know it's really in there for real, and I just glanced over it. No, I'm. I can tell you for sure it's in there in the XPS 13. I've not looked in the Yoga specifically, um, so no, I, I I can't tell you definitively. I will tell you who will be able to. I, I tell you what. Here's what I'll do. Let me put you. I'll put you back on hold. And actually, the gentleman that I had on at the very top of the hour, uh, Jason, actually has helped me with a number of different issues like this. Um, he's very very good and very very talented at being able to crawl in there and saying this is the thing that controls the touchscreen or the trackpad or in our case. A touchpad, um, and I will. I'll grab. Uh, I'll see if we can grab his contact information and uh, and see if he has an answer for you of some easy way that you can do that. Um, and uh, and we'll get back to you. So Stan holds there. We'll pick up and grab uh, some information from you, and uh, and we'll try and get an answer to you. I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for you on the air. Blue Zero is calling. Welcome to the, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How are you doing, Blue? Hey, one sec, guys. Hey, Noah. Uh, I'm literally looking into finishing my website, but uh, what would be the best plugin for it to finish it, finishing it in CSS? I've been looking at CSS Hero versus the uh, Genesis Cruise plugin, and I thought you might have an idea. Sure. And what what is this website for? Social media. Okay. You're uh, okay. So it's, it's it's a personal site then, not for business. It's it's for business. It is. Oh, okay. I see. I got you. I got you. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, CSS Hero. Uh, I've worked with a couple of different times. I've had you know I've I've had good experiences with it. I uh, I'll be very honest with you. I have. What was the other one that you mentioned? The guys who make Genesis. Okay. Things. Yeah, I, I yeah okay. I I've not heard of the the um, yeah. I, so I've worked with with CSS Hero. Here is so here are a couple of different things I would do. One is I would I would reach out to Michael Tanell and he's actually in our Ask Noah chat and he does a lot of uh, a lot of website. He does all of the website design for us. The AskNoahShow dot com or AskNoah dashboard as we call it. He's also helped me with a couple different clients. He does absolutely phenomenal work. Um, you, if you're just starting out, you may not be uh, quite honestly, his, his price rate might be outside of your price range uh, to hire him to do it. And if you're doing it yourself, then you wouldn't want to anyway, but I'm sure he'd be able to answer some of your questions and point you in the right direction. Unfortunately, I, I, I know just 
enough about web technology to be dangerous, but not enough to actually be useful to anyone. I, I, I'm not a web designer and I don't play one on TV. Um, but actually, speaking of websites, I, we actually got an email in here. We'll take the time to address this now. This came in to live at asknoahshow.com. That's an email you can email in if you want your show answered or your question answered live on the air. Uh, this comes in from Bobby F. Bobby says, hello, no, I have a family member who's starting a small business and they would like to establish a website. It would contain info, pictures, possibly the uh, video of a physical service that they provide. I've been in IT for many years, but I have minimal experience with web design and setup. Me too. Nevertheless, they asked if I could help. I am wondering if there's an easy way to get one set up, rather simple. Uh, there will be no IE commerce or transactions taking place. Maybe a service template, uh, which is all we need, and populate and pay the monthly fee. I will not be available during tonight's show, but I'll catch your at, uh, your answer on the podcast later. Any answer, you could, any information you can provide would be most appreciated. Well, um, yeah, actually, I do have an idea for you. There is a website, and I'm pulling it up now. It is called templated, T-E-M-P-L-A-T-E-D dot C-O. And uh, they are a, uh, they are a, uh, I believe most of their templates are Creative Commons licensed. So as long as you do it with attribu attribution, so if you tell them where you got the website from, put a little thing at the bottom, then you can use their their template. And they have some really gorgeous, uh, you know, website websites. And you can you can just download the thing. And where I would recommend you register your uh, website is a, a a register called Register for Less. Registerforless.com. And there's a couple things I like about Register for Less that I have not found on most other registers. The first is they offer um, the free uh, web hosting for like 10 megs, which isn't a lot, but it's more than enough to get what you're talking about. If you just want a simple like online brochure with a couple pictures and stuff like that, it will definitely get you there. Um, the second thing that they do is they give you free email aliasing. So you don't actually have to pay for email hosting. You can have it. Let's say you register, you know, mynewbusiness.com and you can go download this website for free and you can pay, I think register for less charges, $14 a year for uh, the, for their, their domain register. And you, you can move, you, you upload it to their little FTP and you, now you're hosting it for free. doesn't cost any extra money. So there is no monthly fee. And then you can even create email aliases so you can have like, you know, uh, admin at mynewbusiness.com. And then you just simply forward that to a Gmail. Now, there are some downsides to doing that. Um, there are certain spam filters that will not allow you to reply properly. There's some there's there's a couple different things that can go wrong. But 99% of the time, it'll probably be OK. And the cost savings is huge because the only real two contenders, in my opinion, well, three contenders, the, the only two real contenders in 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 my opinion, for email hosting, are Fastmail and Gmail, and then with a short with a with a with a close second being Zoho. Um, the thing I like about Zoho is that they offer a certain amount of email addresses to begin with for free. The thing I don't like about Zoho is for the amount of money that they charge, I don't think you really get very many features. Um, now, Register for Less actually offers an email package as well. I think it's like thirty five dollars a year, something like that, and then you can get. Um, I think it's five email addresses. So it's very cost competitive, but it doesn't do any of the calendaring stuff that Fastmail or Gmail would do. And uh, and the other thing that, that Gmail has over all of them, obviously, is uh, the collaboration. So you will get a lot of people in, in the IT industry that will say, I'm going to send you a meeting invite. And what they mean by that is they're going to send you an email from Gmail and request to put it on your, your Google calendar. And so being in that infrastructure really helps. And I, I I, at first, I thought there was we would find a way to be able to tie that into Fastmail, and I've not had a whole lot of success having that work. So, um, yeah, templated.co and register for less. That's a way for $14 a year, you can get your family member a website to get his business started. AltaSpeed has all of our websites, uh, all of our web stuff hosted there. Ask Noah show is hosted there. I have tried GoDaddy. I have tried Gandhi. I have tried um, the... Uh, What's the, uh, there's, there's another one that uh, same, uh, same company that owns Ting. I can't think of the name, but I've, I've tried them. I've, I mean, the uh, name cheap, I, I've tried them all. And by and large, my favorite register is register for less. So register for less.com, r4l.com. And, uh, you can actually host email there. You can also host, um, your, your website for free, which is pretty cool. And, oh, Rakai is saying in the chat room about Gandhi, he says, uh, Gandhi has similar. Oh, oh, this is something. This is worth something. So Gandhi, which is a, which is a really good register too. I have a couple sites hosted there, but um, they uh, offer hosting as well. They also offer you a free SSL cert. 
Uh, domain privacy is included with Gandhi, also included with Register for Less and the parent company of uh, Ting. They All three of those offer free domain privacy. GoDaddy charges extra. Um, two Cows, that's right. That's the one I'm thinking of. Two Cows is, a, is another good register. Uh, but the SSL, if you were going to do e-commerce right there and there, I would choose Gandhi. And the other thing is, the other reason I would choose Gandhi is if you have a unique name that you want to use. So Register for Less will do ComNet and uh, Org, and I think they do like Info maybe, but that's it. If you want some of the more complicated uh, registrars like, uh, you know, .io and stuff like that, you can buy every, any name you can think of is available at Gandhi. And the other thing that Gandhi has is, is an admittedly very, very nice control panel. Uh, and Gandhi also has a the ability to create subdomains. So you can do like, we have telegram.asknoshow.com. Register for less won't let you necessarily forward the directly a, a subdomain. Uh, it won't create the, the forward for you. So we actually have to set up an Apache redirect to make that happen. Um, if you do it in Gandhi, they actually have their own little Apache redirect server service thing that comes free with registering the, their domain. So my, I guess my, my a very close second would be Gandhi. And in fact, depending on your circumstances, I would just go with Gandhi to begin with. But I have been registering domains with Register for Less for a long time, and I'm very happy with them. And I, I, you, you, can't, you can't go wrong with them. Uh, Eduardo is calling from Connecticut. Hi, Eduardo. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. How's it going? Pretty good. How can I help? Hey, I've got a problem with my Ubuntu 16.04 installation. Uh, every once in a while, the display will completely lock up the graphical user interface. And I'm wondering, is there a way that I can easily restart the GUI without having to restart the machine? Yes. Uh, Control-Alt-F2 or F3, uh, and it will drop you to a command prompt and sudo restart light DM. And uh, that will restart the graphical interface and won't actually have to restart your computer. The only downside to doing that is any applications yeah. that you have open obviously is, is, is going to go away. One thing you can do, and I do this all the time and even more so in GNOME now, um, is a lot of times, you know, those of us that are in IT, again, we, we kind of have a second nature about our computers. We can kind of feel what the computer is doing. And uh, if I have a feel that, you know, it's Chrome that's locking up or it's Firefox that's locking up, I'll still do the control delt F2. But instead of dumping my entire desktop, what I will do is I'll uh, I'll run PS uh, and I'll put all these commands in the show notes. So you don't have to like, try and take them down. But PS space tag AU uh, AOX and then pipe that to grep. And then I'll look for Firefox and get the, the PID of Firefox, the process ID of Firefox or Chrome or whatever it is that I think is acting up. And then I will pseudo kill TAC9, that process ID, and just kill that application. And then the rest of my desktop stuff right. is still when there. when you go back to the GUI, is everything be alive then? Or, yes. Uh... Yes. If you do that, the, the, the GUI, everything, the rest of your graphical environment will be there. And that's, by the way, to get back, it's Control Alt uh, F5, F6. I, I don't, here's the thing. I actually don't really know exactly what they are. I just know that there are four virtual terminals and it's like F1 through F4. So I just, I hit Alt, uh, Control Alt, and then I start pressing F1, F2, F3, F4 until it goes to a virtual terminal. I log in, I do whatever I'm going to do, either kill the processor. If I don't know what it is, I'll just restart light DM and then I'll start going and go do the rest of the F keys to F5, F6, F7 until my graphical uh, environment comes back. Does that help you? Gotcha. Yes. Thank you, Noah. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for calling in. That was actually a fun thing. I, I used to, I haven't had to do that in GNOME. I haven't, I don't think I've, well, part of it is that GNOME just crashes itself once every couple of days. So I never have to restart GNOME. But back when I was using Unity, um, every once in a while, the graphical environment would lock up and I would, uh, I'd have to drop down and do that. And the funny thing is, is I, and I was having a conversation with a gal the other day and she was telling me, she goes, yeah, you, you're always talking about Linux and, uh, you know, then your application, then Firefox locks up or whatever it was that locked up. And, and it's just, yeah, it's no better than Windows. And I'm like, yeah, but unlike Windows, like the task manager is like, you know, a guy in a, in a, you know, suit walking up and tapping you on the shoulder and going, uh, Mr. Process, sir, uh, would you please, uh, terminate because, uh, you're locking the, no, sir, uh, process, uh, process. Process. Hello. Process. Process. And Linux just, you know, walks up and slits the throat of the process and that's the end of it. Um, but I can, I can recover in Linux and I can't recover in windows. So it's not like it's a perfect operating system. It's not that we don't have problems. It's just when I have problems, there are things I can do to fix it. And there aren't things often I can do to fix it with, uh, with windows. So it's a real pain. Chaz is calling from New York. Hi, Chaz. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, Noah. How's it going tonight? Pretty good. How can we help? 
Well, um, I had a question. Right now I'm running Ubuntu 16.04, kind of for the same reasons that Chris has talked about on the other JB shows. Um, and the reason, the primary reason why I centered on is because I consider Ubuntu to be too big to big L. And what I mean by that is if tomorrow Ike writes a blog post that says, hey, you know, there was a family emergency or Solus is way too much work than I was expecting and I just can't keep up with it anymore, it wouldn't surprise me. Whereas, you know, if Canonical says, hey, 1804 is going to be the last Ubuntu, I feel like that'd be shocking, and there'd probably be some people who would have to answer for that. So my question to you is, at what point do you consider a distro stable enough to be a daily driver? And by stable, I mean not that it's going to crash all the time, but that you know you don't have to worry about, is this distro going to make it to its next release cycle? Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, I've taken, uh, you know, my, my fair share of slack for, uh, for, I, I, I guess being critical of, of some of these, um, what I call niche distros. Um, but the reality is you're right. Uh, you know, when you have a single developer or even a couple developers, three, four, five, ten people that are working on a distro, it is infinitely more likely that something, it can take that project out of play than it is a company that has millions and millions of dollars invested in it, or in the case of Red Hat, billions and billions of dollars invested in their product. Um, yeah, I think there's 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 a risk there. And the, the thing is, a lot of people would tell you, well, just go back then. I mean, you know, you could try it. And then when it goes out, just, uh, you know, back up all of your data and wipe away, blow, you know, some of your, uh, blow the data that you forgot to back up away because that's going to happen. You always forget something. And uh, and then relearn an entirely different oh, operating sure. system. Go find all your new software and, and you know, and stuff like that. And it's like, that's not really, uh, that, it's that's that's fine if you're a geek and you're a nerd and you like playing with this stuff. That's a perfectly acceptable answer. But, and, and, and you see this in a lot of these micro distros is you, you'll come across a given piece of software that's not there and they'll say, well, we're working on it or we're going to get around to it or someday it'll, you know, we're going to get there. When that happens, then sure, uh, we'll, we'll start talking about it. But my, my answer to you would be um, stick with the big, big players that have a that have a, that have a financial investment behind that they can't just walk away from if it's a machine that you don't actually want to have to reload you know, anytime in the near future. If I am setting up a server and it's for a client, I don't even think about anything other than Red Hat or CentOS. Even Ubuntu, even if they're not going to walk away from the operating system, the fact that every five years I'm going to have to come do something with that operating system as opposed to Red Hat's tenure uh, is enough that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with Red Hat on the servers. And when it comes to the desktop, I am okay for myself personally running something like Arch or Fedora, uh, you know, but Fedora has a, a really tight update cycle. Arch has an instantaneous update cycle. So neither of those things are going to be particularly suited for the, uh, you know, for your friends and family and, and clients and stuff like that. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And uh, just to be clear, that's not a shot at Ike or anything no. like that or any project like Mint or Arch or anything like that. I don't think that they'll all fail tomorrow. It's just that if I'm going to distro hop, I want it on my own terms. Yeah, no kidding. And, and the thing is, no, I have, I, it's, it's interesting too. And, and Ike himself would tell you this, him and I have very, very similar views on Linux, on Linux on the desktop, on freedom of open source, on advocacy, on making sacrifices to get Linux on the desktop and to get other people there and stuff like that. We both want the same end goal. We both have very similar ideologies. We just have slightly different ideas of how to get there. Um, and, and that's the only thing him and I have ever disagreed on. Uh, and no, it's not a shot. In fact, I have a, I have a ton of Solist installations uh, at a client that we replaced a bunch of Chromebooks. And the thing is, the way that th the level of attention that he has given to that operating system, the things that do work in Solus work flawlessly. And I mean flawlessly. I have not had one single trouble call from that client. Now, that's a good thing because Simple Hope doesn't work on the client on, on Solus, so I wouldn't actually be able to remote in and fix it if they did have an issue. I'd have to go out there. But I haven't had any issues. So the things that are available on Solus are amazing. And I have every confidence that everything that they that they continue to do in Solus will continue to be amazing until they either decide that they don't want to implement something, which is a problem for me, or they decide they can no longer go forward, which is a problem for me. And so for those two reasons, for the most part, I am sticking with, uh, you know, uh, Ubuntu-based distros. In fact, Fossbytes.com headline, why Ubuntu Mate 16.10 could be your new favorite Linux distro? 
The Ubuntu Mate developers have called 1710 Alpha 2 their most super alpha ever. The biggest change to the release comes in the form of tons of improvements for the panel layouts. With the help of feedback from different sources, the developers have brought a distinctive look and different workflow to each panel. To use these different panel layouts, you need to open your Mate Tweak Tools and find the different layouts panel option. You can do this and with a little customization, save your own panel. If you're still sad over the loss of the Unity desktop, Ubuntu Mate's Mutiny layout is surely worth your time. I installed Ubuntu Mate 1710 Alpha on a secondary PC and tried it out to take a look at these layouts. So let me show you their glimpse one by one. Mutiny looks like Unity 7. The traditional layout is the default. That's basically the updated version of GNOME 2. Uh, they've just kind of continued it on. So it has the menu bars at the top, that kind of thing. Mutiny has the big long uh, launcher bar along the side. Uh, Cupertino layout is for Mac OS lovers, has a dock at the bottom, that kind of thing. Redmond layout is for Windows lovers, has kind of a start menu type of a thing. Contemporary is a mixture of the old and new, so it has kind of like the start menu, uh, you know, expandable program category thing, but it comes down from the top and kind of plays off that GNOME 2 feeling sort of thing. Uh, netbook layout for simplicity, everything's under a single menu. Pantheon for the Linux lovers who like the modern look, very clean, sleek desktop. And uh, both the Mutiny, uh, Cupertino, and Contemporary users have the heads-up display feature, which had been highlighted in Unity 7 users. Using this, you can search the run menu bar style commands. The default indicators that you get in Ubuntu Mate are Optimus, Bluetooth, Power, Message, Network, Sound, and Session. Now, the thing is, I actually was on Saturday... Uh, well, was it last Saturday or the Saturday? I don't know. One, one of these weekends, one of the past couple weekends, I was out at a friend's house. They invited us out, said, bring your kids. And uh, their, their, their uh, dad had built this like tremendous uh, swing set play thing. It was like, you know, 16 feet in the air. It was crazy. Um, and while I was there, one of the, the, one of the guys was telling me, he said, yeah, my parents' computer is, uh, is really acting up. I mean, it's super slow. And, uh, and I saw you start talking to the guy. I said, well, what do you do? And he goes, well, I, you know, I, take it into the geek squad and they sell me all you know, this $80 software or whatever. And I install it there and it's supposed to clean the thing up and it doesn't really clean the thing up. And so it's really slow. And I said, well, what do you do on your computer, sir? And he goes, well, you know, I'm a real heavy user of uh, Facebook and, uh, I check my email and, uh, YouTube, watch a lot of YouTube. So I said, yeah, you know what? I got some software for you. Won't cost you a thing. I can install it on your computer and it's going to make the computer run 10 times faster. You're not going to get viruses. You're not going to get malware. In two years from now, it's not going to slow down. And one of his things was, too, he said, you know, I like to let my grandkids play on the computer. But, uh, you know, I'm always afraid, you know, they, they're going to click on the wrong thing and then, then they just tank it. And then I got to pay the Geek Squad to fix it. And I said, yeah, here's the thing. I gave my seven-year-old a laptop and uh, I've never once touched it. Uh, he just, unless there's something physically happens to it, I never have to touch it. He just, he deals with it himself because he can't break the thing. Um, and so we installed Ubuntu Mate. And a couple months ago, that wouldn't have been a Mate. It would have probably been regular Ubuntu because I like that big, long bar along the side. I think it's easy for users to, you know, they, they recognize that Chrome button. They recognize that Firefox button, stuff like that. And uh, my hand was kind of forced. I had to reevaluate what, what distro we were going to start putting people on. I'm not going to go around once every six months and upgrade everyone's Fedora installation. So Fedora's out. I'm certainly not going around every day and upgrading people's desktop and sorting out all of their minor little issues. So Arch is out. Um, so that, it, it, you know, it kind of leaves me with, uh, it, but I want them to have software availability of, you know, Skype and, and Chrome and Firefox and, uh, you know, Rhythmbox and the, all the applications that they need to, to, you know, to do their stuff. And so we installed Ubuntu Mate. And what I'm finding is as I'm, as I, as I, I wasn't, it wasn't a begrudging change. I, you know, I like Ubuntu Mate. I think it's a great operating system. I just, prior to the little spotlight or spot search, search, feature thing that you can click a hotkey and, and search for a given program. It wasn't my personal taste. Um, but as I've been selling Ubuntu Mate, you'd be surprised. Kids of all ages and adults of all ages find that little application menu on the top. They can find, they can go down to the internet. They can find all the things that they want. Um, that gentleman spent the rest of the night customizing his screensaver and, and the, you know, the backgrounds and the themes and all the, he, had a blast playing, toying with all that stuff. And we, uh, we set up their daughter wanted to be able to uh, watch movies. So we showed her how to rip her DVD collection into her laptop, but she thought that was pretty cool. She's on a bunch of as well. Uh, and so as I kind of watched, I thought Martin Wimperus has really nailed this project for his target audience. He really understands what his target audience wants. They want a usable 
desktop operating system that is centered around normal human beings, as he calls it, without having to type any magical incantations into the terminal. So that little welcome screen that comes up, we can just install all the software. They can do it themselves. We showed them how to do that. That kind of that kind of stuff. And oh, by the way, because it's built on top of native Ubuntu, it means that all of the software that runs on Ubuntu runs on Ubuntu Mateus fine. All of those things combined leads to a really smooth experience for the user. And the more I use Ubuntu Mate, the more I'm considering Ubuntu Mate for my own personal use. Now, I have it here at the studio. All three machines are running Ubuntu Mate because I want the desktop environment to get out of my way and I want to be able to just use the computer. And Ubuntu Mate facilitates that. And as I was playing around with the 1710, looking at Mutiny, which is my really only my option, if you really like the way that that side dock worked, and I think it worked great, um, and I don't like the way that the dock works inside of GNOME, and I've tried all of the different GNOME extensions, and the people that, that have that tried to convince me of these GNOME extensions have now just said, just give up on the dock because it just doesn't work right. Um, I, you know, what I found is Mutiny works great. And so the fact that you can get this operating system, this operating system that exists, and we don't talk about it nearly enough on the Ask Noah program, this version of Linux exists that's built, backed by a company that has millions of dollars invested in it and has, you know, has a software, the, the, probably the, one of the best software availability of any Linux distro out there, save maybe Arch, but all the software that's actually in Ubuntu works 100% of the time, and that's not true on Arch. And then on top of that, now we have this tool and we can click on this tool and we can change the view from Windows. We can change the view to Mac. We can change the view to GNOME 2. We can change the view to this, you know, dock along the side that makes it work better than or work just as if we were still using Unity. I think projects like Ubuntu Mate are really the thing that is carrying the Linux desktop forward. I really think that. And uh, we have started to switch a lot of our guest kiosks over to Ubuntu Mate. And those people have been very happy. In fact, I, I, I didn't have it prepared for this episode, but maybe in the next week or the week after, if you guys are interested, let me know. Um, we have a basically a link that is on all of our guest kiosks that sit all the way in public. Because anytime you have thousands of people that are doing something, you can really you can start to study them and you can really start to understand their wants and their desires and you can take their input, right? And so what we've done is we've put this little survey on all of these guest kiosks that they use. And we asked them, have you ever heard of Linux before? Have you, do you have Windows or do you have Mac or do you have Linux at your house? And what do you think of the experience on here? How does this compare with other guest kiosks, public kiosks you've used? And we've collected those, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of responses from thousands of people that, that have used these kiosks over the last four or five years. And uh, we've consolidated them down, and now I'm st I'm starting to get from the people that you know my guys that go out here that install these things. They have started uh, compiling these down into reports, and I got the first couple last week um, of what people are thinking, and it is it is really surprising, the amount of people that say that the machine is faster than what they would have expected at a public kiosk. The fact that there are people that are interested in potentially getting that software on their own computer if it could run all of their if they could meet all of their needs and stuff like that. And, uh, and being able to read through that and see that, you know, when you, people go sit down at something with no pre preconceived notions, because when you sit down at your home computer, you have a certain expectation of where things are going to be, how things are going to work, and what things you expect to be able to do. When you sit down at a public kiosk, you never know. It could be everything from, you know, site kiosk, which is basically a lockdown Windows computer, all the way up to a full-on, you know, uh, you know, a, a desktop that they just, they went to Office Max and bought and just plugged the thing in. And you're logged in as an administrator and you can do anything you want on the computer. You could reinstall the operating system and the front desk staff would never know. That kind of stuff exists. And so having those no preset expectations of, I, I don't necessarily expect to be able to do this, that, or the other. I just want to get down, get on the internet, maybe print a document, maybe type a Word document out or whatever. When you look at how people respond in that environment, I think it really, really gives you some insight into how to how to move forward. And so we've we've kind of taken that, and it's been really interesting. And it's been interesting to compare people's, uh, you know, their results from Unity as we make this change into Ubuntu Mate. Oddly enough, it's it's very positive. Uh, the thing that seems to trip most people up in Unity is the global menu bars, the hidden global menu bars. So if you're not familiar with that, basically the little minimize, maximize, and uh, buttons at the top, they don't show up, on, and the file menu doesn't show up unless you're 
over the unless you hover over it. And so if you're looking for like tools or you're looking for a view, you don't actually see it. And your mind won't tell your hand to send your cursor up to the, the top of the screen if there's nothing up there to click on. And uh, that th that throws a lot of people off. And so and it's kind of interesting when you when you when you give a free form and ask them to comment back. You can imagine the other things they said, too. But it's been interesting to kind of watch and say, you know, this is what they found to be the biggest problem. And that problem doesn't exist in Ubuntu Mate. So good job, Wimpy. You guys are doing great work. and We really appreciate everything you're doing to uh, further the Linux desktop. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. A huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, Ben, our producer, and Rakai, our video editor. We'll hand you off to Crosspoint coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ, 88.3 LPFM, Grand Forks. <laughs>